Well, good morning. Uh, this morning, we are starting a new sermon series um, from the book of Galatians. Um, this is a series that will take us all the way through um, the autumn um, up to um, Advent when we start getting ready for Christmas. And um, uh, Galatians starts on page uh, uh, 972 in the Pew Bibles. And um, when I was in university, I had a friend who like mentioned this in a Bible study, and it's just stuck in my head forever of like how to find your way through um, Paul's epistles. So, you know, he, he writes a lot of letters to churches. Romans is the big one. So it's the first one right after all the gospels. And then you have these, these pairs, one in two Corinthians, one in two Thessalonians. And in between them are all these individual letters. And I had this friend of mine one time go, yeah, go eat popcorn, which is Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So she said it like one time, like 25 years ago, and it just stuck in my head. If I open the Bible and I like open to like Colossians, I know which way to go. I can like turn back. So I don't know if that's helpful to anyone else, but that helped me uh, in finding my, you know, where, where to find uh, uh, these epistles of Paul. So, so Galatians is that first one. That's the, the, the go and the go eat popcorn. Um, earlier this summer, when we finished our series on James, uh, we, we talked about parting words. In that last sermon, we talked about kind of parting words, the last words or phrases that we use um, at the end of a conversation or when we're saying goodbye to someone. And so this morning, as we begin our study of Galatians, we're going to look at the, the opposite end of a conversation. We're going to look at the opening words. Because just as it can be hard to find the right words at the end of a conversation, it can, it can also be difficult to find the right words to begin a conversation. The way that we address other people, the way that we talk to other people, it says a lot about who we are. And it says something about the type of conversation that we want to have, right? The words we use signal what we want to talk about. If your boss came up to you at work and he said, you know, I really like the idea that you shared in, in our last team meeting and I'd like to get together next week so we can talk more about it, right? That, that feels pretty good. That feels pretty promising, pretty inviting. You, you'd probably be looking forward to meeting with your boss. On the other hand, if he just walks up to you and says, come into my office, we need to talk. That feels different, right? That feels ominous. That feels, uh, uh, you don't really feel excited anymore. Now you're nervous. You're like, what, what, what does he want to talk about? And so the opening words, the things we say right at the beginning of a conversation, they can set the tone for that conversation. They signal our intentions and they can prepare the audience. They can prepare those of us who are hearing, who are listening. They can prepare us for what someone plans to say. Um, there's this um, tradition, for lack of a better term, it just sort of, you know, it, it just comes up again and again. U.S. presidents, when they, when, when they give speeches, they, they tend to always start with these words, my fellow Americans. And by beginning a speech in that way, um, they use these words that, that instantly create kinship with their intended audience, right? Even though he's the president, of an entire country, he's choosing to wor use words that emphasize the common ground. We're fellow Americans. Now, of course, that phrase also excludes anybody who's not American, right? So to even use that as an illustration, a lot of you guys are going, well, pff, I'm not fellow American. Um, but it does something, right? It creates kinship with one group of people, but it can also sort of alienate um, anyone else. Um, conversely, you know, a, a carnival announcer, you know, 
will we'll announce, you know, we'll address a crowd saying, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, right? I mean, it's sort of this thing that just includes everybody. And it starts out kind of formal and then, and then continues to sort of widen and become less formal. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, right? It tells you that everyone's welcome and, and that this is going to be fun, right? You anticipate something fun from an introduction like that. And so as we look at this letter from Paul, his opening words matter. What he says right out of the gate, that signals his intentions. They identify who he is and who he's talking to and why he's writing this letter. And so if you would, please follow along in your Bibles as I read Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. Lord, in the time we have together this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe the promises of your gospel, the rich promises of your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever received a Christmas card from someone and had no idea who sent it to you? Um, this has happened to me and Liz a few times, and, and the way it normally happens is it's one of those like photo Christmas cards, and so on the front of it, it just has a picture of some children, and they're super cute, adorable children but we don't recognize them. We don't know who these kids are. And then like at the top of the card, it says like, Merry Christmas from the Turners. Like we, we don't know who the Turners are. And so, you know, we're like looking at it going, I, I don't know, what, did, did we get this by mistake? But like, no, it gets addressed to us. And so you start reading the note or maybe on the back, there's like a picture of the whole family, a picture that has like the parents in it. Um, or at least a note, and we start reading through, and we get to this point where we're like, oh, this is, you know, this is an old friend from university. And you know, in the years of the past, I mean, we haven't seen her in years, but in the years of the past, she's gotten married, and she's had these, these two children, but we haven't seen her in years. We've never met her husband. We've never met her children. We don't know her by the name Turner. You know, we know her by a different surname. And so without enough context, Right? We have no idea. Like it's, it's great that somebody sent us this card, but without enough context, we're like, oh, we, we don't know where this came from. Well, as Paul begins his letter, he wants to make sure that there's no confusion 
about who is writing to them. It's the first thing he says, who he is, and then who he's writing to and why he's writing. Right? Paul wants to make sure that that is clear right out of the gate. Now, Paul has a tendency to pack a whole lot of stuff into his letters. There's a ton here in just these nine verses. And if we tried to explore all of the nuances, all of the things that are in these verses, we'd be here for hours and hours and hours. And we, we don't have that kind of time this morning. Um, so in the time that we do have, we're going to focus on three aspects of Paul's opening words of how he begins this letter to the churches in Galatia. We're going to look at his position of authority, his prayer for the church, and the problem that's facing the church, right? So position, power, sorry, power, no, this is a P word, but it's not one of them. Position, prayer, and problem. Those are the things we're going to look at this morning. And so we're going to begin by looking at Paul's position of authority. Paul begins his letter by immediately identifying himself and asserting the authority that he has to write this letter. In verses one and two, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So first, Paul is an apostle. Now in grammatical terms, apostle just means someone who is sent, right? So in that sense, we could talk about small a apostles or anybody who's been sent like an emissary or a representative. But in the Bible, what we might call a, a capital A apostle, in the Bible, an apostle is someone who is specifically sent by Jesus. Apostles are specifically and uniquely a first century phenomenon. They don't continue after the first generation of the church. And this is because biblical apostles are those who met with Christ after his resurrection. They were specifically commissioned to be his witnesses for starting the church. They spoke with Christ's authority. They were given the power to perform miraculous gifts for establishing the church. And Paul makes it clear that he is an apostle in that sense, in the biblical sense, an apostle, not because he's been sent by the church or by religious leaders, but because he's been sent by Jesus himself. We, we, we see the story of this in Acts chapter 9. Paul was on the road to Damascus when he encountered the risen Jesus. Because up to that point, Paul had been persecuting the early Christian church. But after meeting with Jesus, Paul is completely changed. He becomes an apostle for the Lord. And his preaching and his teaching had unmistakable, undeniable authority. And although that authority was from Jesus directly and not given to him by religious leaders, his authority was recognized by the religious leaders. In 2 Peter verse 3, Peter, one of the other apostles, one of, one of the 12 who followed Jesus in his earthly ministry, Peter refers to the writings of Paul as scripture. Peter says what Paul writes is scripture because he's an apostle, because he has that authority. And so when Paul says, and all the brothers who are with me, he is in a sense giving his credentials. His position of authority comes directly from Jesus and it's recognized by the church. So in other words, Paul's not the only person in the world who understands the gospel. 
He isn't preaching some new novel message. The gospel he preaches comes directly from Jesus. And so the brothers who are with me is an important reminder. It's a reminder for us today. As we preach and teach the Bible, we only have authority to say what the Bible says. Right? As I stand before you this morning, the only authority I have is to say what is in the Bible. If we think that we have some new insight, new clever understanding that somehow has been overlooked for the last 2,000 years of church history, then we are almost certainly wrong. What we say has to come from the word of God. And so by asserting his position of authority, Paul, he's already beginning to identify the problem that, that he'll later address there are people who are coming with new ideas, with novel ideas. They want to add to the words of Jesus. And anything that you want to add to the words of Jesus, well, it's not from Jesus at all. And so from there, Paul moves on to his prayer for the church. So he starts, he identifies himself, and he says, this is the position of authority that I have in speaking to you. Then his prayer, his prayer for the church. Verses 2 to 5, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing Paul does here is he identifies who he's writing to, the churches of Galatia. These are churches that Paul would have planted during his first missionary journey um, which is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. And so this helps us to see that this letter is personal. This is very personal for Paul. He's not just randomly writing to some churches. These are churches that he started, that he planted and established. These are churches that are full of people who he deeply loves. Paul's closeness to these churches, it helps us to better understand the, the strong emotions that he conveys in just, in just a few verses. You know, just a little bit later, he's, he's going to come out of the gate with strong words. And, and this helps us to understand why. Because he loves the people in these churches. But before he gets to that, he offers a prayer for the church. Grace and peace. Now, there are volumes that are packed into just these two words. Grace, in a cultural sense, grace was the standard greeting in the ancient Greek-speaking world. Um, its common translation is, is just simply greetings. Um, it's taken from the Greek word charis, which means grace. Right? The way that you would greet someone in ancient Greek is to say grace to them. And so by saying grace to you, Paul is identifying his audience as being distinctively Greek-speaking, Gentile people, people who are, who are historically outside of the people of God. But then to this, he adds, and peace. And the Hebrew word shalom means peace. And it was the standard greeting among Jews. But shalom was always more than just a greeting. It speaks to the wholeness that we have when we are reconciled with God and with one another. This peace comes from God himself. And so when Paul combines grace and peace, 
he identifies these Gentile believers, these people who are, who are historically outside of the people of God. He combines grace and peace to say, no, you are really and truly the people of God. Grace and peace is a big, inclusive welcome to these churches. And there's also a deep theology that's rooted in this greeting. Grace comes from God himself. We've, we've already talked about that a fair amount in the worship service this morning. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's how God's grace comes to us. And there's nothing that we can do to earn grace. Grace only and always comes as a gift. God's grace is what calls us from death to life. God's grace is what draws us out of darkness and into the light of God's love. Paul says in Ephesians, it was by grace that we are saved. And that salvation then brings us peace with God. It brings us reconciliation with God and with one another. Those who have received the grace of God also live and rest in God's peace. That's Paul's prayer for these churches, for the churches in Galatia, that they would know and experience and cling to God's grace and peace. He's about to say some hard things to them. But before he gets to that, Paul reminds these churches of what they have in Christ. And what they have in Christ, they have because of Christ. They didn't earn it, and they don't deserve it, and they can't add anything to it. Who we are and how we live as the people of God always and only come to us by grace and peace. And so finally, then we get to the problem that's facing the church. In Paul's other letters, he has a habit of including a thanksgiving in his initial greetings. He kind of starts with this like, hey, I'm Paul. Here's who I'm writing to. And then he usually says things like, I thank God for all of you. Or I always give thanks to God for you. Right? He, he loves to do this. He loves to tell his churches how thankful he is for them. And he doesn't say that in Galatians. Instead, he jumps straight into, I am astonished. I'm shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The absence of a thanksgiving in Galatians is striking. Right? It, is, it is a noticeable absence. And it tells us right away that there is something seriously wrong in the Galatian churches. God's people are turning to a different gospel. That's the central problem of Galatians, a false gospel. All of that grace and peace that the Galatians have received by God the Father through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, they're throwing it all away. Paul roots his letter in his position of authority as an apostle because he's going to have to challenge the false claims of those who are preaching a false gospel. And he prays for grace and peace because he ultimately knows that it's God alone who can change our hearts. Now, the particulars of the problem, that's going to come up later in the letter. 
But right here, Paul makes it clear what's at stake. He says, you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. So in other words, false teachers are coming into the church and they're distorting the gospel. They're twisting the gospel. They're trying to add to it. And so rather than seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these great Old Testament promises moving forward to the coming of Christ's kingdom, they're teaching Jesus as an add-on to the Old Testament promises. These teachers were telling Gentile believers that they needed to become more Jewish. And so instead of seeing this forward progression of God's promises, these teachers are telling the church to go backwards, to move towards what was before instead of what has come and what is yet to come. So the, the, the title of my sermon is, is taken from um, this phrase that's in the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. And the U.S. Constitution, its preamble, it, it states its purpose by saying, in order to form a more perfect union, a more perfect union. Now, in its historical context, that more perfect union um, is the idea of a relationship between a government and its people that would be distinctively different from the constitutional monarchy that, that we have here in Great Britain. There's loads of reasons for why that happened. Um, and, and of course, that hope was that this new government would somehow be an improvement over the old. And, and I'm not really interested in debating the rightness or the righteousness of, of that cause or evaluating its successes or its failures. Um, that's, that's not why I looked to this um, this morning as an illustration. Rather, I just want to critique it on its grammatical merits. Um, grammatically speaking, perfect is a superlative, right? So we have comparatives and superlatives that, that are modifiers that we use in language to, de to describe the quality of something. Like I could say, smartphones keep getting more and more expensive. Um, or I could say, and if you've been at, at our apartment when somebody is rung up from downstairs, I could say that the buzzer in our apartment makes the most startling noise imaginable. And it's shocking. It's so loud. And so expensive and startling, these are conditions that can be elevated. They can be added to. You can be more, something can be more expensive or something can be the most startling. But perfect, well, perfect is already elevated. It's already an elevated or a completed state. Perfect, it can either mean without error or it can mean complete, done. But either way, it's an absolute condition. You can't add to it. The only way to modify perfect is actually to take away from it. And so that means that if you want to modify perfect, which I would say the, the rules of grammar say just don't try, don't. Uh, same applies to unique. Um, you can't say it's more unique or it's more perfect. So what you have to say is that it's more nearly perfect or most nearly perfect. Because it's perfect, you can't make it more. That's the central problem for the Galatians. False teachers are promising them a more perfect union with Jesus. They're trying to add something to the gospel. And this is what Paul at first calls a different gospel. But then he immediately corrects us and he says, not that there is 
another one. The gospel is an absolute. It's superlative. You can't add anything to it. Whatever you try to do to add to the gospel will only take away from the gospel. It'll leave you with less than the gospel. And so that's why Paul is so astonished. Because the Galatians are believing false teachers who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But to do this, it means rejecting the grace that we have freely received in Christ. It means forsaking the peace that we have with God. Because Jesus gave himself completely for us. He held nothing back in going to the cross. The full wrath of God was poured out on him. And the full price of our sin was paid. God did this. Not because of anything that we had done but because of his mercy. God did this, not because we are worthy, but because he is gracious. The gospel is God's gift. We can't earn it. And we certainly can't add anything to it. Paul says that anyone who tries to add to the gospel is accursed. He says, even if he or an angel tried to add anything to the gospel, that they too should be accursed, despised, rejected, thrown out. Because to try to add anything to the gospel is to drag people away from the mercy of God. Now in our churches today, we can see this same tendency to add to the gospel. We can begin to find our assurance, not in the finished work of Christ, but in, in secondary things that we can do. Things like our theology or our social views or our outward behavior. In other words, we can be tempted by fa false gospels of legalism or relativism or moralism. Legalism can lead us to a kind of, of theological elitism where we think that, you know, we're the only two true Christians because we've got all of our theology in the right order. Legalism rightly proclaims that the grace of God is for salvation, but then it, it often tends to sort of slip into this place where sanctification becomes really more a matter of, of, of our own effort, our discipline, doing the right things. It takes a secondary thing and makes it the primary. Likewise, relativism can, can lead our churches away from the gospel um, because it starts to teach that, you know, good people, well-intended people, kind people, nice people, that they're going to find God in their own way. That's the temptation for relativism. But this view ultimately says that, well, Jesus' death isn't necessary, that people don't need God's grace, or at least that good people, kind people, they don't, they don't need God's grace. And finally, our churches can become consumed with tradition or religious practices. This is a bit of what's really happening in Galatians is, you know, how we dress, what we eat or drink, you know, these kinds of things become the most important. And so whether that's something like, you know, modesty or, or purity culture, or it's a strict abstinence from alcohol, or it's or it's, it's absolute and extreme views on, on schooling. And that could be homeschooling or, you know, private schooling or any number of things. Um, 
or a tradition of social and political activism that says, no, the church must do this in the world. These things are temptations to add extra rules for what the church should look like. And all of these forms of distortion are contrary to the gospel. They run in the wrong direction. They try to add something to the gospel. But the result, whenever we try to add something to the gospel, is that we receive less, less of the gospel. So that's, that's what Paul is setting us up for here. He's, he's starting with this whole introduction to say, there's something deeply wrong. And people are trying to get you to add something to the gospel. And all it's going to do is move you further away. And so as we close this morning, what is the gospel? I mean, Paul has reminded us repeatedly, just in these opening verses, what the gospel is all about. And it has to always be the core of our preaching and teaching. Jesus gave himself to deliver us from our sins. We could never do anything to contribute to our own salvation. It's always and completely a work of God's grace. We can't do anything to add to it or to improve Christ's work for us. We can't strive for a more perfect union with Jesus. Because if you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus died for you, that God has saved you when you were dead in your sins and could do nothing for yourself, then you have already a perfect union with Christ now and forever by his grace and by his mercy for his glory. Let's pray together.